Hello and welcome to the Big Ideas Into Action podcast from the World Resources Institute. And in this episode, we're looking at the IPCC report, what the science says, what the impacts of climate change are, and what the world needs to do about it. We really can't afford to put any of these transformations on the back burner. It's essential to start acting on all of them. Then the obvious question, will the reports lead to urgent climate action? If this is not a signal enough uh, for the policy makers to make a difference, to change course, I don't know what more do we require. Hello, I'm Nicholas Walton and welcome to this World Resources Institute podcast on the three reports that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has launched this year. The jury has reached the verdict and it is damning. This report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is a litany of broken climate promises. It is a file of shame cataloging the empty pledges that put us firmly on track towards an unlivable world. We are on a fast track to climate disaster. To unpack and analyse the reports and offer a few thoughts about what happens next, I spoke to two of WRI's experts. Preeti Bandari is our Senior Advisor for the Global Climate Programme and Finance Centre, but first Sophia Bohm, Research Associate at the Systems Change Lab. We are in the sixth assessment report cycle for the IPCC, and so far we have received three reports from Working Group 1, Working Group 2, and Working Group 3. The first report from Working Group 1 focuses on the physical science of climate change and looks at the evidence of global warming that's already underway. And this report found that things like sea level rise is faster than in in any prior century for 3,000 years. Glacier retreat is unmatched for 2,000 years. Concentrations of carbon dioxide are unmatched for at least 2 million years. So it was really synthesizing the latest science on how the climate is changing. The second report from Working Group 2 focused primarily on climate impacts that the world is already feeling, climate risks that we'll feel in the near term and the long term, our vulnerability to these risks, and the effectiveness of different adaptation strategies. And then the third report from Working Group 3 focused on different pathways for reducing greenhouse gas emissions and removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere to limit global temperature rise to ideally 1.5 degrees. Preeti, when you were reading these reports, was it what you'd expected or was there anything that surprised you? The outcomes of all the three reports have been in the range of the expected, I would say, to the extent that we all know that it is a code red for humanity. Uh, The Working Group 1 report, as my colleague Sophia said, uh, has clearly shown that the science is telling us that the emissions are way off track. Uh, The Working Group 2 report has shown that we are already in a 1.1 degree temperature increase world uh, with impacts across various regions, across various sectors, and also portending to what it could be like under a 1.5 degree scenario or a 2 degree scenario. And Working Group 3 has um, further strengthened the evidence on what are the options for reducing greenhouse gas emissions, uh, what are the technologies, the available technologies, what would be the cost of uh, uh, 
mitigating climate change. So to that extent, it is expected. But what has been new in these reports is uh, if I were to take the latest one, the Working Group 3 report, uh, the level of urgency that it has brought to the fore that uh, we have basically three years by 2025 to peak emissions and by 2030 we have to half them so you know we were talking about a decade for action but that decade is uh, actually narrowing down even further so that is the unexpected part of it uh, what is also um, different in uh, both the working group two and working group three reports is the emphasis on social science. So for instance, the working group three report on mitigation for the first time has looked at demand side uh, possibilities and, uh, you know, changes in lifestyle and behavioral changes that need to be unleashed to be able to reduce emissions. Similarly, uh, the Working Group 2 report has focused on poverty and equity, which uh, will obviously be impacted uh, by the various climate impacts uh, that would again uh, be unraveled, so to say. So that linkage between the physical science, uh, the social science, I think, and also between mitigation, adaptation, and sustainable development uh, per se, I think is an important way to show the dependencies, the risks, and the co-benefits of taking action. So if this is not a signal enough uh, for the policy makers to make a difference, to change course, I don't know what more do we require from the IPCC. Sophia, you're one of the co-authors of an Insights article on the WRI website, looking at all the various things that need to be done. But it's not just a question of picking one or two. It's pick all of them, isn't it? Yes. So we've gone past the, the point where we can prioritize cost-effective solutions or low-hanging fruit. The IPCC finds that transformations across essentially all major systems are now required to hold global temperaturized 1.5 degrees. So in this latest report, that includes scaling up clean energy, uh, doubling down on innovation to decarbonize industry, incentivizing green buildings, redesigning cities and shifting to zero and low carbon transport, as well as protecting, restoring and sustainably managing ecosystems and producing more food with fewer emissions. And to Preeti's point, also around these demand side shifts around curbing food loss and waste and shifting to more sustainable diets. So we really can't afford to put any of these transformations on the back burner. It's essential to start acting on all of them. Now the IPCC finds that we can only hold global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees if we act immediately. And the action that you're talking about isn't just in terms of reducing the amount of carbon that we'd otherwise be emitting. It's also about taking away carbon that's already in the atmosphere. And that then involves new technologies, both ecological ones like restoration or reforestation and artificial ones. Right. That's exactly right. So this latest IPCC report found that in all of the pathways that limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, they all depend on carbon removal with estimates ranging from between 5 to 16 gigatons of CO2 
per year by around 2050. And so in the near term, restoring natural carbon sinks like forests is a relatively cost-effective, readily available carbon removal approach that, if done well, can deliver lots of co-benefits. But the carbon stored in these ecosystems is vulnerable to disturbances like wildfires, which are only going to intensify as climate risks increase. And during these disturbances, they can release carbon back into the atmosphere. So given that impermanence or the concerns around impermanence, as well as the scale of carbon removal that's going to be needed, there is, as you suggest, also the need to explore carbon removal technologies. These are relatively nascent, though, and they come with different costs and benefits. So it's really critical in the coming years to scale up our investments in research development and deployment so that we can better understand um, the costs and benefits and risks of these different approaches before we start to really deploy them. Preeti, back to you. The thing you mentioned earlier on about lifestyles and behaviours and what we do every day, what we own, what we consume and all that. I understand that the report draws a distinction between those that are already wealthy and consume much more carbon in their daily lives compared to those who are poorer and contribute far less to the problem. Nicholas, obviously, there will be a differentiated response depending on the socioeconomic context, but the IPCC Working Group 3 report also has brought forth a stark um, uh, number that, you know, the rich in the world are um, contributing to as much as 36 to 45 percent of greenhouse gas emissions. So it is the lifestyles of the rich uh, and they're across both developed and developing countries, though the predominance, of course, is in developed countries. So if 36 to 45 percent of those emissions are coming from the rich, then there is that uh, tremendous scope, as uh, Sophia was talking about. And the poor are contributing uh, very little. And there have been some arguments made that, you know, access to energy will be increasing in developing countries, and that would contribute to increasing emissions. But IPCC report has clearly shown that providing access to clean energy to the poor and developing countries is not going to lead to a significant increase in emissions. So the onus then again comes back to those uh, who are privileged, I would say, to walk where we can and to change our diets and to be more sustainable and leave a lower carbon footprint. Uh, so, so there are options available. Of course, there will be some incentives required also to bring about those behavioral changes. And this report has uh, shown uh, you know, that uh, there are policy options available to make that happen. And Nicholas, just to add, the mitigation potential of shifting these consumption patterns particularly among the world's wealthiest, is significant. Um, the IPCC estimates that these demand-side shifts could cut greenhouse gas emissions by 40 to upwards of 70% by 2050. These changes in lifestyles and behaviours can make an enormous difference. What about the countries that aren't in the poorest lot, aren't in the richest lot, but are in the middle, but where economic growth is really happening? And people are seizing lifestyles vastly different from those of their parents. So that's diets, cars, foreign holidays, massive amount of extra consumption year on year. I'm thinking, for instance, about East and Southeast Asia and quite a few other parts of the world. Where do they fit in? The kind of sections that we're referring to actually look at 
households with income in the top 10% globally. So it's not really looking at it by countries. It's looking at the wealthiest within developed and developing countries. As the IPCC report showed that two-thirds of those top 10%, of course, are living in developed countries, and there is a lot of room over there to change lifestyles. But, you know, the the balance one-third, of course, lives in um, uh, fast-growing developing countries. And while there is that aspirational aspect of those getting rich in developing countries, to ape the lifestyles of those in developed countries, there are possibilities to modify those lifestyles as well. I could take the example of, you know, ownership of cars. Uh, it is a status symbol in in many developing countries to own a car, to aspire to that kind of, uh, you know, lifestyle. But to the extent that options could be provided for mobility, which does not you know, rely so much on personalized modes of transportation. To that extent, uh, even for the rich in developing countries, there are possibilities for reducing their emissions and it does not excuse them from that responsibility, I would say, of reducing emissions. Throwing forward to the rest of the year, how will you judge progress, whether the report is being taken seriously and turned into action? as we build up to the IPCC synthesis report later in the year? The scientists have done their work. They have uh, provided the evidence that is needed for the policymakers to take the next step. So in terms of the first opportunity for science to influence uh, the policymakers uh, comes at the intercessionals in June in the UNFCCC process, where Uh, The negotiators will be considering the outcomes of the IPCC reports and there will be certain important processes uh, launched, which includes uh, discussions related to uh, the global goal on adaptation, discussions related to uh, a work program on uh, funding arrangements for loss and damage, uh, and also a work program on mitigation ambition and implementation of mitigation for which a decision is expected at COP27. So it is now up to the negotiators and policymakers to take the cue uh, from the scientists and uh, really, you know, buckle up to make sure that what was envisaged in the Paris Agreement uh, really comes to fruition through through the actions and uh, agreements that they uh, unveil in the rest of the year. As we said earlier, the window of opportunity has uh, really narrowed down and uh, the Working Group 3 report, you know, is basically pointing out to avenues for last hope. So so the policymakers uh, have the challenge in front of them uh, to help us uh, navigate this and uh, to bring us to a point of at least keeping the 1.5 degree goal alive. Sophia? Yeah, I mean, I think we saw in the lead up to the last COP, many countries pledging to reach net zero by around mid-century, but a number of of studies, including UNEP's emissions gap report, showed that countries' near-term targets were still not ambitious enough and didn't place them on credible pathways to reaching net zero. And I think 
you know, from a mitigation perspective, the IPCC report makes clear that immediate action is needed and that we need to peak GHG emissions between 2020 and before 2025 at the latest. So I will really be looking for countries to strengthen their near-term commitments and near-term action so that we don't miss that critical milestone. That was Sophia Bohm, and you also heard Preeti Bandari talking about the content and urgency of the three reports that the IPCC has published. You can track down the Insights article that we mentioned on our website, wri.org, plus plenty more on climate change. You can also find all of our podcasts on the website or subscribe on whichever app you use for podcasts. I'm Nicholas Walton, and thank you for listening.